Welcome to Amplified, the podcast channel from the international business of Federated Hermes, where we discuss the key issues, challenges and trends shaping the investment landscape. I'm Ewan Murray, Head of Investment, and today we'll discuss the issue of sustainable fashion during a pandemic and take a look forward to reflect on how the industry might develop. As global lockdowns forced high street clothing shops to shut earlier this year, fast fashion has inevitably been under severe pressure. The coronavirus crisis has resulted in a slump in demand for new clothes, which has had a ripple effect across the industry's international supply chains. The pandemic has also brought issues of sustainability within the fashion industry into sharp focus, both from an environmental and a social perspective. It is likely the virus could accelerate trends already underway to buy fewer items, to rewear, to resell and to rent clothes, as well as bring production back closer to home. But as economies start to reopen around the world, will this new approach to fashion be maintained? And if it is, what does it mean for investors? Joining me today to discuss this are some experts from the consulting, engagement, and fund management groups. We welcome Mike Barry, Kate Larson, Lisa Langer, and Martin Todd. Let's start with Mike Barry. Mike is a sustainability consultant and board member of Blueprint for a Better Business. And until recently, he was director of sustainable business at Marks and Spencer and spearheaded its groundbreaking Plan A sustainability program. Mike, thanks for joining me. Can you give me an overview of what you're seeing and what's known as fashion's dirty secret, i.e. the industry's environmental impact? Well, I think you're seeing a couple of things happening at the moment. One was pre-COVID, we were seeing a world of consumption. Back in 2000, the world was consuming 80 billion garments a year. By last year, it was 130 billion. It was not pathway to 200 billion. Every garment had a significant social and environmental impact. And as hard as we were all working to reduce those impacts, the sheer growth in consumption was swamping them. Now, pre-COVID, there's been quite a bit of discussion about fast disposable fashion, a bit of pressure on it, but people were still consuming the same way. However, as we step out of COVID, it's clear that there's going to be significant disruption of the marketplace. Partly economically, people are just going to have less pounds or dollars in their, in their purse to spend on clothing. Partly because there is now an alternative for people to buy into. And I think particularly the resale platforms, there are many out there, people like Depop, Thriftbuff, Threadup, Bestiaire, Collective, who are enabling people to resell clothing that they bought, they've worn, they're finished with, and rather than throw away, they can get some economic value from putting it back into the marketplace. And of course, there's movements like worth wear at least 30 times before you buy new. Where I, rather than wearing it once, twice, three times, you wear it at least 30 times. That's your commitment. There's repair, there's rental models. They're small, but they're emerging as well. So it's very clear that what will happen over the next two, three, four, five years, that citizens will find a new way of consuming fashion. And fashion has got very thick, high fixed um, economic costs. It's incumbent industry. It doesn't take to lose much of your existing sales people put under significant financial pressure. So as these models rise, a lot of today's incumbents will be washed away. So disruption driven by sustainability is coming to this sector. And Mike, do you think um, you could unpack some of the negative environmental impacts that have started to reverse since that global lockdowns began? So the social environmental impact of clothing is very profound. Um, It's poorly understood by many people in the marketplace. You know, right from the cotton field where you've got thousands of litres of water being used in some of the most parched parts of the world uh, to grow cotton, a kilogram of cotton, 
through to the dye houses using many potential toxic chemicals being washed and treated into, into waterways in the developing world, through to the factory, um, where you've got particularly social issues, um, a largely female workforce poor, paid poorly, with often human rights abuses uh, in that marketplace, right through to the marketplace where the end consumer buys the garment, wears it infrequently, often, and then throws it away, either to landfill or to incinerate it, and certainly no secondary um, value taken from it. Um, some people have said that it's the second, third worst polluting industry in the world. That's still up for discussion. But let's put it in the top five. You know, fashion has a huge impact driven by consumption right across its value chain. And Mike, you've mentioned some of the new emerging pro- approaches to consumption that could drive change. Uh, have you seen any specific initiatives from companies or industry bodies that will drive more sustainable consumption of fashion? So having done sustainability in a big business for 20 years, it's very clear that you can't become sustainable on your own. The system that you participate in, whether it's regulatory, whether it's financial, whether it's just a general marketplace, is too large and too broad for you to affect change to perfection yourself. So you have to work with your competitors and peers to drive change. I saw it at the, in the food industry, the other art part of Market Spencer, where at the Consumer Goods Forum, you've got the world's biggest businesses, the Cokes, the Pepsis, the Walmarts, the Tescos, the Nestle's, the Unilever's coming together to shape sustainable change on things like deforestation, driven by palm oil and soy, plastics, um, human rights and supply chain, a willingness for these big competitors to work together to change the flawed system they're working. Now, fashion, it's much earlier up on the journey. There is the fashion pact. Paul Pullman's done a brilliant job to bring together something like 25% by volume of the world's um, clothing industry to work together on things like biodiversity, climate change and plastics. You've got the global fashion agenda based in Copenhagen, bringing people together to really co-create and co-imagine a sustainable future going forward. But again, these platforms remain nascent. They've got an awful lot of work still to do. And having been in those rooms at the Consumer Goods Forum, getting ferocious competitors to work together on profoundly difficult issues deep in supply chains on the other side of the world, it would be hard for it. But collaboration is vital. Thank you, Mike. Let's see if we can further unpack some of these issues with Kate Larson. Kate is the Director of Supply ES Change Initiative and has 15 years of experience in ESG, human rights and modern slavery risk management and prevention, including time with Burberry and other fashion and apparel retailers. Kate, Mike talked about reselling and sharing clothes. What role does the second-hand fashion play in encouraging more sustainable consumption patterns? Hi, Ewan. Well, yes, we, we have a lot of second-hand. We've been selling billions of pieces, and I think Mike spoke to some of the, the environmental impacts of that. Uh, but increasingly, there has been a move of many of us to, to buy often stunning, say, vintage dresses, which we get complimented more for. But more importantly to our listeners is that business models will, will need to change. So you know, I've been working in fashion apparel since around 2004. And, and whilst things have changed in terms of the sustainability and ESG conversation, which is fantastic, you know, as Mike discussed, the reality is the industry has, like many, played a large role in massive destruction of our environment and ecosystems. And from a macro perspective, it continues to. It, it's certainly not clean tech. So we need to clean up and um, the buy stuff, throw away growth model, business models cannot continue. We need to speed up our efforts to more sustainable regenerative models. And, and many of us expect our pension and other investments to, to support this, as do emerging new laws. 
Um, but but just to be a bit more detailed, fashion has depended on cotton and leather, uh, for example, which rainforest has been cut down for the growing of, and, and that opens up humanity even to these Zika viruses like corona. Uh, fashion has depended on jewelry and embellishments from diamonds and mining, uh, for which rainforest is also destroyed, and petrochemicals, uh, for which oil and gas has been drilled. So many people, an increasing number of people are aware of that. Rental has been growing. And, and whilst you know, there aren't necessarily household names yet, um, early adopter fans seem very loyal. It's a, it's a, it's a, a membership model as well. Online fashion, large online fashion retailers are now partnering with charities um, to use their tech expertise in online retailing to sell charity fashion. So that's an example of business model shifting as well. Um, and it's not just when we think fashion, it's not only garments. You know, I've audited factories in China making photo frames and umbrellas and the same environmental impacts um, and, and human rights risks can be found. And so businesses want to grow. We want businesses to grow and increase their revenues. Um, but really interestingly, if you look at, for example, Patagonia, um, we're also seeing a shift to not only that repair model they've always had for a long time, um, and that partnership, as I mentioned, some companies are doing with charities around removing um, clothing from the landfill um, and into that sort of more circular, slightly more circular, which we'll hear, I believe, more about on this podcast, uh, but actually even into different businesses. So away from clothing, which um, at the end, there is eventually an end of life, and into agriculture for food, regenerative agriculture for food. So quite a business model shift um, and Burberry having a new cafe pilot these days. So increasing revenues without having to sell more stuff necessarily, but selling stuff we need, which is we're always going to need food. Levi's even started this a few years ago with, with uh, stores to support regenerative repair and upcycle. So there's a lot we, we've lost historically over the past 50 years, a lot of that repairing that my grandmother used to do. And now we're seeing businesses um, and, and organizations like Fashion Revolution holding businesses to account for uh, how can they get engaged in what charities have driven around that repair and upcycle. And then I'll just finally say that with COVID, we've shown that many businesses are now um, making clothing hygienic again after somebody tried it on the store or from an online purchase. So we know that can be done. Um, and so now it's that, how do we do that with the clothing which people have been throwing away into landfill? Okay, you covered a lot there on the environmental side. I wonder if, if we could also talk a little bit about the social impacts of fast fashion. And uh, have human rights issues in the fashion industry's supply chain been exacerbated by the pandemic? Unfortunately, yes. Um, you know, whilst um, you know, people are suffering in the UK or the West, but but also many have had a um, some time off on, on furlough and, and had a nice time with kids. Um, but you know, what, what I work with is people who are representing the millions of workers in Bangladesh and places like that who've lost their jobs uh, because Western retailers cut orders. And hopefully some of um, our listeners are aware that, that many retailers are being held to account by civil society uh, if they haven't paid their suppliers for orders uh, because People produced uh, garments and other products months ago before COVID, COVID was coming, and and these orders haven't been paid for. So that's that's a massive social impact we're, we're going to see, um, and also brings sort of new new angles to the conversation on what is ethical business. 
Um, and then another angle is for foreign contract workers. You know, they've always been vulnerable to modern slavery and forced labor and, and bonded labor contexts, but now even more so. Uh, with restrictions on movement. Um, and then for those in areas where they've had to go back to work, excessive overtime pressures coming in and around, some of you may have seen around rubber gloves. And then the context for all of this that, that I think listeners should be aware of in terms of when we look at companies that investors are investing in is that the EU, even in the corona crisis, has said they're going to go ahead with drafting um, their business human rights due diligence legislation with specific mention of supply chains, labor and environmental due diligence, and the Swiss government as well. Um, and these issues are part of what has driven that move by civil society. And it's not just for fashion. It's, it's very similar for tech supply chains, auto, healthcare, as I mentioned, um, with PPE and, and the rubber gloves in Malaysia is an, a very clear example. Um, and, and then this is also in a context, you know, I mentioned that ethical business or the purposeful business, which was some of your um, you know, investors, um, clients may be interested in. This is companies who are maybe paying out large dividends or executive compensation while not having paid their suppliers. So the human rights community have been paying great attention uh, to this context. And I think that whole conversation around business human rights due diligence and, and explicitly around supply chains is what I'm seeing um, as very much what's moving forward um, and with that heightened reasoning due to that impact on millions of people around the world from COVID. And just last, lastly, say very much for us here in the UK, this week we've had Leicester, um, a city in the UK, having shut down um, again due to COVID um, coronavirus uh, numbers going up. And apparently that's on the back of uh, fast fashion factories that have been somewhat at times sort of underground um, in Leicester, where workers have had to keep working throughout the crisis when the rest of us were sheltering or, or, or in lockdown um, because some of these are semi-formal and some of those workers in modern slavery. So the, the, work, the conditions have exacerbated, um, unfortunately, for, for companies who had uh, modern slavery risk in their supply chain, which is almost all, but I, I guess I'm saying, especially for those who weren't managing it well. And ultimately, Kate, do you think that the coronavirus will reinforce the idea, the notion that production should be brought in-house where that's possible? Right. Thanks. So um, I worked in Burberry, which is one of the large luxury fashion players, and, and they've been some of the, the players who've talked about this for a long time, um, having you know, many of the, the fashion firms are produced in Italy is the country we all think of, and young Italians apparently don't really want to work in factories very much. So over the past 20 years, there have been um, a lot of Chinese workers, some of which were trafficked um, into the network of all the little factories around Prato. And so conversations that, that large factory uh, fashion houses have had over this risk for many years and getting on top of it. But nevertheless, I'm just trying to give an example of the fact that um, Business human rights due diligence is now more on the agenda, more on the board agenda due to these new laws coming in, just as we've been seeing around climate change with TCFD, the Task Force on um, Climate Disclosure, uh, Financial type Climate Disclosure. So we're going to see that more companies are saying, well, you know, at the board level, we're paying attention to these issues these days, as, as some of the leaders have done. Um, and 
and yet these issues are exacerbating, as I just mentioned. So it's safer to to own your own factories again, as as companies like um, Burberry and Louis Vuitton and a few others have done for many years, um, and and have that closer, tighter supply chain. The risks have also increased in China, where I lived for many years, and I, I work on the human rights issues there. Where I'm not sure people saw the past few days the Uyghur situation. Um, intensifying and in March a report came out linking 80 multinationals around the world to suppliers in China across China not just in the region of Xinjiang uh, with Uyghur workers and forced labor in their supply chains and I've spoken about that on the BBC which people could hear on um, our podcast if they go to the supply ES change newsletter so my point is yes um, we've hearing a lot about onshoring and and orders coming home from countries like China you're not going to see an end of sourcing from from other countries but we are going to see a reduction and with that that conversation um, about in in housing um, becomes a little more relevant as well. Um, because if you're just merely chasing those low margins from Asia and, and you're seeing a company talk about that, not talking about these environmental and uh, human rights risks, then we can basically say that they're not on top of them. Um, and these are countries where, unfortunately, whilst we, yes, we've seen progress on, say, solar and wind power in China, we've also seen a human rights context in which it's harder for human rights and environmental defenders to protect wastewater uh, or, or streams in their area from wastewater pollution from a factory. So, so the risks have been heightening. And as I say, boards are by new laws and expectations being caused to pay more attention to them these days as well at risk of, of lawsuit or, or other enforcement by regulatory authorities. Uh, that, that's super, Kate. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, and good news that companies are being forced to think uh, more broadly. So many of the issues that Kate and Mike have covered are engagement topics for our stewardship business, EOS at Federated Hermes. From the perspective of an engager, Lisa, can you talk a little bit about how you think fashion businesses can move from crisis management to developing more circular business models? Thanks. I think that's a really good question, and I think it's very topical. I think it's the right time to ask this type of question as we um, engage with different companies on behalf of our clients. And I think this, what we've seen in this pandemic is that it's been incredibly disruptive for fast fashion retailers, of a lot, as a lot of the stores have been closed and consumers that are now more cash-strapped are really reducing their discretionary spending. So there are some estimates that the fast fashion industry will contract by up to 30% this year. And it's therefore clear that some companies will not survive this crisis. Um, I personally have engaged with multiple apparel companies in the sector to discuss their response to the coronavirus. And you're right, at this point, it's all about adequate crisis management. It's about maintaining liquidity. And that means companies are currently focused on cutting costs and managing the relationships with their suppliers, as Kate talked about. And also now um, ensuring that as stores reopen, they can really uh, maintain the health and safety of their employees and customers. So, how can they move from this crisis management to more circular business models? It's a challenge. 
I firmly believe that companies who take up that challenge will be better equipped in the long term because we have really seen that consumer awareness about the environmental impacts um, that Mike has talked about is um, increasingly heightened. There are some, um, for instance, McKinsey argued a lot that there's, there are different views about overconsumption and responsible business practices that make consumers um, have different uh, choices in the products that they buy. There was a recent um, consumer survey as well, even before, like at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, where 70% of respondents really had a preference for sustainable clothing. So I think that the pandemic could exasperate all these trends and make it somewhat unfashionable to buy fast fashion products. And at the same time, regulate. I do see a potential for regulation increasing in less areas as different governments are focusing on a more on a greener recovery path. So I think um, as an engager, this is the point where we really talk to companies um, to make sure that they're have a good approach to the issue and to move to more circular models of business that Kate explained. And, and Lisa, in your experience, uh, what, what other sorts of things can companies be doing to be on the right side of this transition to a more sustainable way of production? So it's obviously a very, very big shift, but I think the first step should really be focusing on reducing and mitigating the negative environmental impacts of production. So we then expect companies to move from from that reducing negative environmental impacts to actually looking at different business models about rental models, sourcing more sustainable and long life materials and having really clear plans of what would happen to that product at the end of life. So for me as an engager, when I discuss this with a company, I want to see that they have a clear, strong public commitment to move to more circular approaches and also have evidence that they're investing in alternative business models such as rental and repair. Um, I want to see evidence that they're part of collaborative efforts that have specific targets because as um, we've discussed before, it's a, it's a, a systematic, as a, a systemic issue. So um, all different actors will have to work together. And the last thing I really want to see is to have a strong sustainability strategy that clearly addresses the negative environmental impacts, including climate, water, material sourcing, and then closing the loop and having a approach to end life managers uh, at the end of life management, excuse me, that um, really engages with the consumers. And then Lisa, from your perspective as an engager at EOS, are there ways in which firms can match their ambitions with action by setting targets and reporting standards for sustainable production specifically? I think it's all about comprehensive targets. So these ambitions that a lot of companies have need to be matched by comprehensive targets um, that are time bound and that are clear and that are reported on a year on year basis to have a um, comparison year on year to for us investors or the clients on behalf of the clients that we advise to be certain that there is improvement and there's progress being made. 
So targets like this should include a clear emissions reduction target, such as a net zero target, a science-based target, a water intensity target that is science um, that is time bound, um, an ambition to have zero discharge of hazardous chemicals, and also targets for the circular aspect. So I would expect um, a target for the proportion of recycled materials that are used in the production that is time bound, that is broken down by material type. So quite detailed. I expect a lot of detail and also um, a good understanding of the different impacts that different materials have. So I would like to see that companies really have an assessment of, of materials and rank them in terms of environmental impact and then set material specific targets. And at the end of life side, obviously, it would be great to have uh, collection targets um, where or targets for the quantity of clothes that are repaired, that are upcycled. So I think overall, as um, as an engager talking to a lot of different companies on that issue, it is very complex. It's a complex system that needs quite complex solutions. So um, from our perspective, we want to have a clear understanding of what the company thinks an approach would be to really reduce the environmental impacts and also engage with consumers in a different way. So we want to see a very clear narrative around this. But at the same time, we can't be completely prescriptive and say, this is the way to go. This is how to solve all the problems. You need to give different companies the uh, space to be innovative. So I think having active dialogues with companies really helps on this uh, because it's really important for them to understand the investor perspective and that we're quite supportive of moving towards circular models. Excellent, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, I know how much we value your detailed engagement work on the investment side. So lastly, Let's turn to Martin to get a perspective from the investment world. Uh, Martin is co-head and portfolio manager on our European equities team. And Martin, how big do you see the sustainable fashion opportunity for investors being? It's, uh, it depends how you define sustainable fashion. And I think, as some of the previous guests have discussed, there's a lot to consider within sustainable fashion. And I, and I believe that investors will all interpret it slightly differently. So we've discussed some of the materials used in production. And I think with all fashion companies, there's a lot of focus, understandably, on the supply chain, about the usage of water and chemicals and, and the overall contribution to greenhouse gas emissions that that, uh, that that generates. And I think with the COVID crisis, I think, as has already been mentioned, it will accelerate some of these trends. I think when we talk about uh, consumer awareness of the environment and of responsible consumption, it's going to cause huge disruption to the industry, which as active investors um, is, is what we like to see because it will create winners and losers. And, you know, through our analysis, um, that represents an opportunity for us to, to see exactly which companies we believe can adapt uh, and potentially benefit from this opportunity and those which are perhaps more challenged. I think when you look at the apparel retailers themselves, um, I think there's perhaps more challenge than opportunity. Um, it's not just a case of ensuring that their production is sustainable, but they also have to be recognized for it. And consumers have to see that that is a sustainable product. 
it's not necessarily easy for consumers to understand which products are sustainable and which aren't. And we can see that in a number of surveys have suggested that for some of the value apparel retailers, they are associated with unsustainable products, even though they often share the same supply chain or production facilities as their more expensive branded peers. So it presents two challenges for these companies. One is a brand marketing challenge, and, and the other is ensuring that the production side is, is sustainable also. Uh, to add further challenge, there is evidence as well that consumers aren't yet willing to pay for uh, sustainable fashion, which then in turn puts more pressure on margins. When we put that all together, I think uh, for the retailers themselves, I think the larger companies may be in a stronger position. They have uh, more financial firepower. They can absorb some of the costs and disruption, um, particularly during COVID. Um, and they can also advertise and promote their sustainable credentials more, more aggressively. Um, I think there's also an opportunity, as has been discussed, in some of the rental businesses, the reuse businesses. And, and I think we'll see more repair of apparel. Um, I think if we look more broadly, there's an opportunity in adjacent sectors. Um, so it can be innovations in areas like detergents. Um, you know, if we can wash uh, clothing at lower temperatures, we can help to prolong uh, the life of that product. Uh, there might be opportunities in machinery and industrial uh, sectors for sorting, for recycling. Uh, and I see also opportunities in more renewable, sustainable materials. So ultimately, it's a trillion dollar plus industry. And I think there's a huge financial incentive there for innovation and, and for those companies that can really adapt uh, and help provide the solution. So, Martin, you said that uh, consumers are getting there slowly. I'm wondering if, if you think investor preferences on the flip side are changing. So, for example, uh, is there a strong preference to avoid business models that are reliant on overconsumption and equally maybe to embrace uh, sustainable production? Uh, with uh, the growing number of ESG investment strategies that we see out there in the market? I think there's definitely a case to be made for investor preferences changing. And it's something that, that we see in the conversations we have with companies and in analyst meetings. Five years ago, there wasn't a lot of thought given to um, the broader topic of sustainable consumption. Uh, now it is one of the first questions at uh, most analyst meetings that we attend. And for us, the, the, uh, a lot of the focus is on, on what the risk is to volumes. So I think um, your previous guest, Mike, mentioned the rise in um, purchases of, of garments per person. So I think since 2000, um, the number of garments purchased on average has gone up by around 60%. And the number of times those garments has, have been worn has fallen by around a third. And so... I think there's a potential for an unwind of that. So one of the biggest risks to businesses, which investors are focusing on, is, is simply the volume of products that they sell, which clearly has a huge impact on their profitability. It's not all negative, though. And um, some ESG investors in particular focus a lot on the scores provided by um, third-party uh, analysts um, with their ESG rankings, um, some of the larger retailers uh, in Europe that we look at score very well on these analyses. Um, they tend to be 
companies that are conscious of their supply chain, their efficiency, they look after their people, um, their disclosures are usually fairly good um, and comprehensive. And as such, they often rank very highly in these ESG rankings. As such, for some ESG investors, it's not necessarily a place they are avoiding. Um, but I think to go back to the, the prior question on the opportunity for investors, I think given the disruption in this industry, it's an area where you'll you'll see a lot of flow and um, a lot of investor attention more broadly. Very good. And then lastly, what is your exposure to sustainable fashion within the uh, European equities portfolio? We've, we have exposure to two stocks. Uh, one is a, a sportswear company. The other is um, a leading apparel retailer. Um, the, the sportswear company that we own, um, we find that really exciting uh, for a number of reasons. Um, they, they've introduced uh, various initiatives in recent years, uh, one of which is a line of shoes that uses recycled ocean plastic. Uh, from a standing start in 2016, they expect to sell 15 million pairs this year. Uh, and this is part of a number of um, recycled loop production processes that, that they, have, they are focusing on. Um, they actually hope next year to take this a step further. Um, they're looking to a fully circular loop production, um, you know, in line with the circular economy theme. They hoped that they can launch a recyclable shoe. Um, this would contain just one material. It wouldn't have any glue or solvents. Um, and for reference, a typical shoe or a sneaker might have between 60 and 70 different components and materials. Um, so innovation like this uh, is really exciting for us. Um, they, they also have a line in recyclable hoodies already. It's one of their best-selling products. Um, and alongside some of these initiatives, they have very clear targets that they're looking to achieve. For example, by 2024, they hope to use only recycled polyester. 100% um, of the cotton they use is sustainable cotton. Um, and they also target carbon em uh, emission reduction more broadly, uh, which they hope to reduce by 30% over the coming decade. If I, if I turn now to the apparel retailer, um, similarly, we are excited by a number of the targets they have and the way that they've focused the business model uh, to ensure that it is sustainable through the cycle and through a pandemic such as the one we have now. Um, they have a number of uh, initiatives which also relate to um, more responsible consumption. So, for example, they aim to have recycling collection points at every store worldwide by the end of this year. Um, they work with a number of non-profit organizations for the collection and then recycling of those products. Um, they have their own sustainable product line. This has doubled in sales the last couple of years and is now around 20% of the group. Um, they link their uh, management incentives to sustainability targets. Um, and they're on track to completely eliminate single-use plastic from their business by the end of this year. Um, so there's a couple of examples there of, of companies with exposure to uh, sustainable fashion. And we're really excited about the prospects for both, despite the challenges that has been noted during this podcast. Um, we, we see a lots of opportunity also uh, in the coming years. Thank you, Martin. It, it really, it's heartening to hear about some of these uh, fantastic uh, innovations. Sadly, uh, that's all we have time for today. Uh, Mike, Kate, Lisa and Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, 
I'm Yoan Murray, Head of Investment at the International Business of Federated Hermes. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.